Welcome back, Left Reckoners. I'm Matt Leck. With me as always, David Griscom. Hello, David. How are you today? Man, I'm not bad. Looking forward to the holidays. I am glad that you're doing well. I am, uh, on the other hand, really pissed, I gotta say. Um, I don't, I've, I've been thinking a lot about how I, like that gut feeling in response to different types of murder um yeah and uh and you know there's like the the at the hands of the police that's a certain kind of disgust and um uh feeling of helplessness when it's political it it it's 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 really angering um in a way that like i i it's hard to like hard to respond to like i I remember this feeling about around charlottesville too like just that like I, it's very hard to tweet at say like the things Tim Pool is uh, saying about that shit and do it without uh, it, uh, making yourself liable to some sort of uh, suit or uh, proceedings. You know, and it's it really is disgusting when you think about. It. I mean, like we've like the rhetoric has always been nasty, but you know we're not the only ones who've been saying this. A lot of people have been saying it's like this is where it ends. You know. Mm-hmm. not even where it ends but like this is what it leads to eventually yeah and like you know particularly like when you start talking the way that the right is talking about children that like children are under threat that is so encouraging to like really unhinged individuals to sort of take matters into their own hands you know from this yeah. to like the pizzagate thing right and, and it doesn't matter how far from reality the claims that the right wing are are, are making there's always going to be an audience of people who are you know, really willing to do really, really horrible things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. It's been really harrowing. Um, yeah, you know, the, I mean, I, in the on the same weekend, some guy uh, caught on video for the fourth time throwing a brick at a uh, Hell's Kitchen uh, gay bar uh, here in New York, and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, you walk it, like it felt like a sort of sanctuary at some point, but you realize like, oh no, this is the country we live in, and it's mm-hmm. they're emboldened right now, and it's it is infuriating so i just want to say for all the folks um be safe out there and uh you know if you need if you're you know i mean i i just think of like i mean gay bars in fargo and stuff like that like mm-hmm. it, it it's uh, it feels like a bit of a siege so you know reach out to us if you have any sort of i don't know any anything to say yeah, <laughs> uh for sure uh yeah, I, I want to uh, do have a little bit of fun before we uh, we we go into the Danny interview, which uh, which uh, I'm excited to share with folks um, on uh, Call of Duty. Uh, but David Sachs, folks might know him. Uh, he was recently uh, profiled uh, critically by Jacob Silverman, recent uh, Sunday Show guest. Uh, check it out, Patreon.com/slash/LeftRecording for my talk with. Uh, with uh david or jacob uh on um we did talk a little bit about david Sachs, but on vcs in general and the quiet political rise of david Sachs, silicon vines prophet of urban doom so this is a guy who put in a lot of money to like the anti-chase of Boudin stuff he's part of the paypal mafia um silverman shared this clip of Sachs and another venture capitalists and the way that they approach uh crypto and i think it's very revealing and i say we're gonna have fun this is another very infuriating thing, especially when you think about people who might be underwater and having a, frankly, a dark Christmas because mm-hmm. sort of scammer. Uh, and uh, these two guys, basically what they, and I was going to look at what AUM stands for. I used, I remember, um, I mean, AUM, I'll look it up, but uh, they're talking about crypto earnings and basically assets under management. So I think they have to, uh, they're talking about assets under management. So how much crypto they hold, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're talking here when they mention discounts, they mean they mean the early buy-in before the stuff like a 
say a monkey JPEG NFT is available to uh, the public, they get in early and mm-hmm. then that stuff gets sold to the public and they're supposed to hodl, but do these guys hodl or is hodling really something that they're selling to their rubes that they're scamming and, you know, wall inspecting mm. um, and, you know, building houses off of frankly taking their money. Here is uh, these guys talking about uh, this uh, Solana, which is, as uh, Jacob uh, Silverman points out, Solana is a, a Sam Bankman freed uh, related cryptocurrency. All these guys are trying to make a big noise like, oh, the liberal press was too easy on this guy. And no, they were right there with him, uh, scamming with him. Chamath Polyhapatita, and I'm your boy J-Cal. Sax, I gotta say, I think I think your AUM is positively correlated with the bags under your eyes. <laughs> if you mean it's getting bigger, you're correct. I mean, fuck. <laughs> they're, hi- they're heavy. Good lord. They're heavy. <laughs> Dragging you down. That's where you're hiding all that Solana, in your fucking, <laughs> under your eyes. Jesus. Oh, a, you better clear that Solana position. What's your lockup? 24 months? <laughs> fuck no. He's trying to sell it to me on text message. Yeah, of course we're he negoti- is. We're negoti- discounts i just had the fact so just right there right like you're supposed to have that locked up for 24 months but he's already trying to shift it for what dollars that sweet sweet fiat give me that fiat early before all these other rubes realize that this isn't actually meant to last this isn't actually meant to do any of the things we say it is except get the people who are connected flush with fiat you're fucking the whole thing up Bro, you don't you don't oh, think to, you, I'm hodling. I'm hodling. You think I buy hundreds of millions of dollars of anything without a discount? Everything is a discount. Everything's discounted. You want to clear that position? So these guys but bragging about they don't buy anything crypto at the actual face value that you rubes buy in at. Position in an LLC. Are you saying I got a billion dollars of Solana? No, bro, I'm Ooh. saying I have one. But you know, I brought it at a discount. But you're holding, correct? Ish. Yeah, okay. Yeah, me too. <laughs> they laugh. I mean, that smugness, man. Yeah. I mean, it's just that's that, unbelievable. That's the thing is like, you know, I got to say, Matt, like, it's funny, like, because we have been like on the crypto thing for a long while now, mm-hmm. you know, and there's like, <laughs> there's part of me that like wants to have like some pleasure in like seeing the whole thing sort of fall apart, but you realize it's just like, the reason we were so frustrated about it was one because it's very clearly um, a scheme and a scam from the get go. Um, mm-hmm. But two, like the popular nature of it, in the sense of like everybody should get involved in this, everyone should be investing in this, was always just set up to make those kind of assholes uh, super rich. And like all of the argument about like democracy, democracy, like we're democratizing finance for everyday people. You know, it was really just like. Oh, no, no, we're going to still play the same kind of game, but we just get to be the ones who are, you know, sitting first at the table this time um, instead of having to fight against more like old school institutional in, in investors. Right. And these people are very connected, um, you know, just trying to find a, you know, a, a market um, where, where a certain select group of folks could, you know, eat first. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they certainly are. And it, yeah, it's just it's extremely like cruel, and nasty, um, you know, to 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 watch how. Um, even in a, you know, in, in a system like this where, you know, you know, there, a lot of those folks have put some money into it, um, you know, they're not having the same experience as your kind of everyday person who got, who like bought into the hype of this new crazy technology that's changing the game. Yeah. And I was always cautious not to predict like the end of crypto. Like I thought it could maybe, I, I mean, I, I, I just don't know. Right. But fundamentally it is what it is. And like, 
So when you come out, when you go to somebody and say, oh yeah, those guys at the top, they're laughing at you when yeah. you, when you say hodl they're, yeah. and, and literally they were. And, and for a shorter term than even I thought, like these guys were ready to cash out yesterday. Mm-hmm. They can't wait to get that shit off their books and have actual money. And that's all you need to know about this shit. Yeah. I think that's right. <laughs> so RIP for now, uh, <laughs> until <laughs> the next, for, for whatever reason, uh, you know, some of that stuff starts to come back. I mean, it's been wild watching the World Cup, man. Um, cause they have the crypto.com banners on the sidelines, like next oh, to the right. Coca-Cola and the Budweiser zero non alcoholic Budweiser. <laughs> um, yeah, they've been, uh, um, seeing those have, has been cracking me up cause it's like, man, they must've negotiated that like a year ago. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? It's just like it's not so a good funny. time right now to, to be, uh, you know, marketing for crypto, but. In our wildest dreams, I don't think we would have thought it would splat this hard. And, um, um, I don't the, know. The, I I'm, mean, I'm, don't want to like after the fact, you know, say I, I was making bold predictions. But the thing is, like, you always knew that once it started to get hit, it was going to be quick because there's no, pretty, there's no floor and, there. Yeah, and also I'm pretty sure like you and I think like other folks mentioned interest rates, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah. like I think that that it's not a coincidence. It's um, I mean it's it really is like uh, you know the thing that sucks is like you know. I mean, I've complained about what the Federal Reserve has been doing because yeah. it's obviously squeezing uh, working people. But like, that's the thing when you have like a dynamic economy that it, it, like, you know, raising interest rates is really bad for, you know, normal people, for wages, for all these kind of things. Um, but also the really, really low interest rates has like allowed all of these kind of zombies to sort of come come forward. And it's been like, a, you know, a decade plus of this. And it's like the the kind of like, shock in, in some parts of the economy that we're going to be watching over the next few months is going to be really interesting because so much of particularly like the the american like financial system was so addicted mm-hmm. um you know to to cheap money and uh yeah you know, i mean it's dry up is changing the game yeah i thought i talked about this with jacob but like it really is like our our like last 10 years instead of obama being like all right we're not throwing people out of houses we're gonna send this uh, money that we're magicking into air we're gonna put that directly in the hands of the american people mm-hmm. instead we gave it to these lords of innovation and bankers <laughs> and we have elon musk and david Sachs, uh you know jumping around you know you're so right it's like i mean if you ever wanted like a good argument against like particularly like the american you know system of capitalism it's like think about how much money has been pumped into the economy over the past decade and think about things that like we desperately need like a green new deal right um and instead of getting that we got like fucking pictures of monkeys and, and, and you know fake money um bro you think Ch- like china like you imagine china looking at their like high-speed rail infrastructure that they've built in the last 10 years being like look at these motherfuckers yeah they're no, high I'm on their totally. own supply I definitely would. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it, it's just like despite what Elon Musk says about rich people being, you know, people who are very good at allocating capital, we're seeing very clearly that you know the system just chasing after uh, profit, you know, as as the number one and, and sole goal is not a really good way to run a, a you know an economy of this many people and of this much productive capacity. It's really extremely wasteful. Uh, it's a good thing we have to learn this at once every like hundred years. Yeah, it's um, fun. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Can't wait to do it again in twenty five or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Just same thing again. Uh, exactly. Space bucks next time. 
But I mean, talking about some some lessons, uh, we're going to be joined in just a second by Danny Bessner uh, to talk about um, call the Call of Duty video games. And uh, um, I think it was a really fun conversation. Danny is obviously great. People should be listening to the American Prestige podcast if they're not already. Um, I mean, we'll get into most of this stuff uh, during the uh, the interview. But one thing I just want to remind folks about Danny is like, you know, there's a certain kind of like lefty criticism of like video games or like violent movies or, you know, it's like, Oh, this is glorifying the military or whatever. Right. And it's like, fine, I get it. But it's like, you also don't participate in this stuff. So like, I don't care what your opinion is. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, if it's not for you, then it's just like, yeah, you're just finding a reason to justify the fact that you don't like it. Right. Danny's the perfect person to interview about this. Cause like, he's a gamer, you know, like he's right. playing these games and he's, he's enjoying them in their own in their own way, but also recognizing like the very worrying aspects um, of it. So I think it was a lot of fun. And so we'll get to that. And then this weekend um, for patrons, patreon.com slash left reckoning, uh, we're going to be uh, joined um, by our friend, pretty bad lefty, uh, the, the master swolitariat uh, to talk about yeah. Matt's buddy, Blake masters. Yeah, it was very fun. Uh, sat down with Brandon and uh, uh, yeah, Blake masters crying. I don't know what you really <laughs> Like, Blake Master's crying caught on camera. So you're going to want to see that. And uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Patreon.com slash Left Reckoning. So enjoy all of that. And everyone have a good uh, holiday weekend. We'll see you next week. Peace. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. Uh, David Griscom here. And really honored to be joined uh, by a good friend of ours, uh, Danny Bessner. Uh, you should know Danny Bessner, but if you don't, uh, he's a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. You can read their work in The Drift, Harper's, Jacobin, and many other places, and is the co-host of the excellent foreign policy podcast, American Prestige, uh, with Derek Davison. And y'all should uh, subscribe to their Substack to get access to all of the bonus episodes. I, I'm a fan. It's probably one of the... I tell people I don't really listen to many podcasts, but yours is one of the exceptions. And it's always <laughs> so much fun you. to be hanging. <laughs> Thank you, David. And thanks again for having me back. Well, I, I want to bring you back on because, you know, there's a new... Uh, Call of Duty out. Um, and you wrote a piece uh, last year for the Drift called First Person Shooter Ideology. And there's a link below for people to read the whole piece. Um, and I want to talk to you about it because I think it's a really interesting piece. You know, sometimes, you know, I understand like why a lot of lefties sometimes get intimidated or annoyed by some of like the militarism or violence in video games. But oftentimes the criticisms come a little hollow to me just because, you know, you're not participating in this culture. A lot of the, not you, but like a lot of these lefties to make these criticisms don't participate in that culture. So they're just sort of looking. Yeah, I mean, I'm a gamer first and yeah. everything else. Second, a Jew, an American, <laughs> a guy, you know, gamer is how yeah, exactly. I. <laughs> no, no, so yeah, that's why you're the perfect person to get on. Cause uh, yeah, as Danny just said, they're a gamer. And um, I mean, before we get into like Call of Duty, like in particular, I wanted to like ask you, like, what is interesting to you, like, you know, from like a, you know, intellectual standpoint, like about video games like Call of Duty and like what they represent kind of culturally and politically and more generally? Sure. I mean, they're just by uh, for young men in particular in the United States, they're, they're by far the most important cultural product, more important than television, more important than films, certainly uh, these days, more important, I would even argue, than school and things along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that cultural critics don't really pay that much attention to them. Um, a few reasons for that. A, a lot of them are just old, frankly, and they didn't grow up playing, mm -hmm. you know, the modern consumer video game. Um, so that's a really important one. Um, and then um, I think that people just uh, find something off or something 
a little dirty for lack of a better <laughs> phrase about gamer culture in general um i mean particularly after gamergate uh and 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 people were, were correct to be um angry at that whole issue uh, but it has sort of a sour cultural odor um and it's associated with with young maleness which is something that's inherently dangerous and violent to to a certain degree and and that makes um you know it's not such a wild thing to to think that but i think we ignore it at our own peril i think you know it, the left is so interested in culture um because we can just keep on losing where it matters uh mm-hmm. that we should examine this one and yeah i mean like i i totally get like th- this point i mean you know just like from my life like i was always interested in in history and like a lot of that you know grew out of playing games like civilization and total war and things like that and not only does it like sort of get you interested in these things like you know like <laughs> not to make myself sound like too much of a rude but like you pick up a lot of like historical like knowledge or like or reference points from these kind of games so like a game like call of duty which for a lot of people i think probably is especially younger folks like is their introduction into some of like america's like imperial adventures um you know it does end up becoming uh you know really important and i mean before we get into like um the specifics about call of duty like the 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 stories in the games and things like that i did just want to ask you a question because i think this is something that most people sort of implicitly um you know understand but there's this kind of idea on the left that like games like call of duty are um, very fi- not just favorable to the military, but like the military um, likes these things as like a tool for recruitment. Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, I think just factually there are um, connections between Call of Duty developers and the military. From my understanding, some executives have con- uh, of the of the film company. Uh, sorry, uh, some executives of the video game companies that produce Call of Duty have connections to the military industrial complex. There's certainly consultants back and forth, and, and there was recently some some documents released that 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 suggests that they are are strong. Um, connectors and and uh, connections between the two uh and i haven't looked into it recently but there was a you know a military um related call of duty tournament and things along those lines so so certainly there are connections um but then the question is what do those connections mean uh so there's sort of the the argument that you can make by and and similar to what you make about film and tv you know by making some of the protagonists even if you portray them quote unquote negatively you're inherently making people empathize with them and, and humanizing them that's not the best term but i'll just use it now because it's early um and you know making people feel like part of their project and part of their story and there's certainly uh truth to that but i i actually think that the ideological messages of the games are not as straightforward as they were when you know the first few calls of duty i think the first three uh don't get mad at me if i'm wrong but i think the first three deal with world war ii mm-hmm. before they they expanded into different eras and you know alternative timelines and stuff like that um and so certainly the call of duty world war ii games are very rah-rah patriotism for the most part um even though they do portray you know the classic war as hell but we did it for a good reason type situation but when you get into later areas i think that it actually has a, a, a more cynical message about war even if the call of duty um company is connected to the military and even as the military makes use of call of duty for recruitment purposes and you know just making the military seem exciting to young men mm-hmm. and i mean i remember a few years back that there's a lot of controversy at like recruitment centers 
um, in poor neighborhoods, them using like Call of Duty as like, you know, an enticement to get people to come and hang out before they could like actually be recruited. It's just like, oh, after school, you can come and play video games for free um, at the military. But I do agree that I think that, you know, we should have a wider um, focus than just like that very specific kind of interaction between, you know, a recruiter and a potential recruit. Um in in the piece in the drift, like you you write a bit about you know the Black Ops uh, Cold War game, and if you just want to give people who might not have played that like a sense as to like what narratively you saw in that game that sort of rang some you know alarm bells in your head, that'd be great. Yeah, I, I so the game, as David said, is about the Cold War, and it's basically you're kind of. Um, I, you're associated with the government. You're uh, effectively like an elite unit that travels around the world, killing various U.S. Cold War enemies. Um, but what I found interesting about the game is that it, it really wasn't a sort of rah-rah patriotism. It makes use of the classic Cold War trope of brainwashing and who's really on your side. Is your government using you or other governments using you? And it's a pretty cynical take on global power politics and the United States' role in the world, um, which was surprising because when I went into it, I'm like, yeah, it'll probably be some sort of like vague rah-rah, but it's it's really, really cynical, kind of like a, a 70s paranoid thriller, post-Watergate thriller um, take on the U.S. military. Um, but at the same time, even though it's incredibly cynical, it has like no alternative or it has no way of thinking through what this might mean or what this might say about u.s power it's kind of like everyone's bad you know regardless of what side you're on ideology is kind of bullshit um it doesn't really matter what you do every man is out for himself and that means you have to be out for yourself in order to survive so it's a very cynical take but it has no really positive um not in terms of like like the effective positive, but it has no program hmm. for what this means, how you might change it, whether you should change it. It's just sort of, this is the way the world is and it sucks and you've got to deal with it. I mean, could you talk a little bit more about that, that brainwashing bit? Because I think that that's like an interesting history of those arguments in the cold war and also how it's sort of like replaying itself in the call of duty games. Yeah. So brainwashing is a classic cold war trope. Um, I reference a book, uh, that I, I actually reviewed about it in the article. I forget the name right now, but people could just check out the article that David mentioned, but it, it's a way where people, you know, feel disconnected in the modern world. They don't know who to connect to. They don't know who to relate to. Uh, they're, they're not sure if they could even trust their own minds. Um, and sort of between this great game, uh, between the United States and the Soviet union, uh, people find themselves lost. And that's effectively the trope that is replayed in the game. Um, you, you don't really know who you're working for. You don't really know who, uh, uh, whether you are able to even control your own self. And this is, of course, uh, exemplifying fears of fifth columns that were very prominent from the 1930s onwards in the United States, which I, you know, helped lead to things like Japanese incarceration during World War II, the various Red Scares that occurred over the late 1940s and early 1950s. So this was a, a paranoid era. And I think this represents the, the, the paranoia that was at the heart of the Cold War. Um, but I mean, you, you know, it, it is interesting um, to see how like the Cold War, you know, even compared to, you know, some of the other major U.S. conflicts um, is interesting, I think, in the way that it's remembered, particularly in this game, but I think remembered by people who like didn't live through it um, 
as less of like an ideological struggle between like communism and capitalism and sort of like a, a pure power struggle that was sort of necessary to happen. Like if you have two large powers, like they're just destined um, to, you know, enter into some form of global conflict. Yeah. Um, so, uh, sorry, David, you want me to explain how the game differs from that or how? No, it I mean, it? yeah, how it connects it would be great. Yeah, so I mean, there's no ideology in this game. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. That that there's no we're doing this. It's not even like we're doing this for America. Let alone we're doing this for capitalism or we're doing this for freedom. Um, and the Soviet players don't seem to really have any ideological perspective either. Um, so it's kind of interesting because just in in terms of professional historiography, and, and this is trickled down to the larger culture, the Cold War is now portrayed very much so as a struggle between capitalism and communism and a real ideological uh, struggle. I think that's less true after the early 1960s than it was in the mm-hmm. 1950s. But it's interesting that there's no real uh take on that whatsoever and there's even no real take on sort of david what you were referencing the classic classic realist quote-unquote approach which is that states that are powerful naturally try to expand because they want to ensure their own survival and that means they're going to eventually come to conflict unless there's some sort of negotiation between them there's really no even mention of that it's kind of just a bunch of individual actors running around the world for various purposes um and the the bad guy is essentially psychotic. He 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 kind of just wants to have the Soviet Union take over the world, but it's for unclear reasons. It doesn't seem like he wants to usher in a communist utopia necessarily. He kind of just wants to take over the world. So he's a classic supervillain. So the the Cold War is really just a um a backdrop uh, in, in in a sense, but in another sense, this is kind of an accurate portrayal of of elements of the Cold War, where you would just have kind of uh, soldiers of fortune running around the world, particularly true in, in the post-Vietnam period. And so um, it's an interesting reflection of the confusion that Americans have about the United States' role in the Cold War, the purpose of the Cold War, what that war did or didn't do. I mean, um, I think it's it's also interesting um, to see like the, the cultural and po- political movement where these games came out, because like the first one, as you know, your piece came out in 2003. I mean, you know, could you talk about these games as like, a, you know, as a cultural product of, you know, the, the forever war kind of generation that we've been we've been living through over the past you know two decades? Yeah, well, it's very much not that sort of rah-rah patriotism that, that was mm-hmm. evident in the early Call, uh, Call of Duty games. I think it's pretty clear that there's a cynicism about the United States's uh, ability to reshape the world through the war, to reshape the, the world through military conflict and war. Um, and I think that game really does reflect this cynicism. There really are no genuine heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone is kind of a cynical realist trying to do what they can to advance their own interests or their side's interests, although it's unclear what exactly they're trying to do with either. And so I do think that's a reflection of the cynicism of the last 20 years of American war, where the United States failed to turn Iraq and Afghanistan, and you could add Libya and Syria uh, and other countries um, into what was promised in the early post 9-11 era, you know, functioning democracies that are liberal, democratic capitalist states um so i think there is a cynicism about 
that. But again, what's interesting to me is that there's no alternative. It, there's this sort of what I term imperialist realism, where that the game can't can't even imagine or even gesture toward in any way, shape, or form uh, that things could possibly be different. This is kind of understood as just the way it is. You know, the famous it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, but just replace capitalism with imperialism here. And I think that's reflected in the in the, its cultural product and a lot of cultural projects around the United States. Mm. I mean, like, I, I'm just going to read uh, that quote from your piece because I think it really hits the nail on the head. Um, so what messages would the average 14-year-old take away from Black Ops Cold War? To riff on a phrase uh, coined by Mark Fisher, the game um, uh, evinces uh, a, an imperialist realism that can't quite justify American actions abroad, but also can't imagine a world outside of a military-dominant U.S. empire, right? And like you can see how this can create like quite a cynical political um, outlook uh, for young people. If like these are the the kind of cultural products that they're engaging with, it's just like there are bad things that happen, but you know at the end of the day, it's just sort of they're they're destined to, and there's not really a good reason for it. Um, and you just sort of have to live in this world where there's a lot of pain and suffering, um, you know, just to fit um, a, a kind of you know. I mean, in, in this case, like a, a narrative of a video game, but when you expand that to like the life that we're all living, like the, you know, the ins and outs of all of our lives as American citizens. Uh, exactly. And I think that's right. And there's just no way to imagine a different world order by mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination. Um and so I think that's why the military is okay with Call of Duty, because it doesn't matter if they're cynical about it. There's just no other alternative presented. So, you know, if you're a kid who likes Call of Duty and you don't see anything that you could possibly do in the world, why not sign up for the military and just be out for yourself there as opposed to be out for yourself in, in any other sphere of life? There's no sense of social solidarity whatsoever. It's a hyper-individualist message, which I, I guess can also be connected to the fact that in a video game, most video games you're playing as an individual person as opposed to part of a social collectivity. Um, I mean, it's funny, probably many people listening will be like, well, of course, but I mean, you could imagine, and there, um, there are games uh, where, where you play in more collective ways. Mm -hmm. So just the very, you know, focus on the protagonist running through shooting has an ideological component uh, to it as well. You know, this is, uh, people have to forgive me, but when I went to college, you know, I studied philosophy and I was really into a lot of these French philosophers and uh, Alan Badu, um, you know, has this, had, has this really interesting distinction that he makes between what he calls the warrior and the soldier. And he sort of makes this argument that in the 20th century, we moved away from warriors to soldiers. And like, what is a soldier? He argues is like somebody who's fighting for like a collective, for like an ideology that you've actually subsumed yourself, you know, in the sense of like you're fighting for American imperialism or capitalism or in the Soviet context for like, you know, Soviet, um, you know, style communism to, you know, build a system of global communism. Um, you know, and, and I, when I first read that, I was like, that is an interesting idea that like, you know, regardless of like thinking about the conflicts that people are engaged in, like understanding that there is a distinction between, um, you know, a kind of like personal violence that's like, you know, fixated on glory or heroism or th these kind of things and like something that's collective. Um, but I think as as you write in the piece, I mean, the individual shift of, of these fights is really interesting, right? Because it isn't just, you know, carrying the flag of, of a certain side. I mean, it really is like your own personal narrative within this kind of chaotic, violent world.
Yeah, I think that's precisely right. And I think that that indicates, broadly speaking, the the crises of these collectivist ideologies, not even collectivists. That's not the right word. Sort of collective ideology, mm-hmm. even like liberalism, you know, that 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 could be a collective ideology that could help organize people. And it just seems like no one really believes in anything any longer, particularly the millennial and Gen Z players of these video games. It would seem weird if mm-hmm. your your main character was a true believer in liberal democratic capitalism. It would seem naive. It would seem foolish. Um, and I think that that is where you can get into this type of ideological critique of the game. You know, and like, I mean, just as a historian, I'm curious what you think about this. But like another game that I like to play, um, you know, Elite Sniper, it's fun. You know, you get to roam around and, and, and fight Nazis. But that's another one that's like hyper individualized. Like you're set in the middle of World War II. And as the story progresses without spoiling anything, um, you know, basically this one fella who's sort of like loosely attached to the U.S. military ends up preventing global Armageddon and preventing the Nazis from developing like a nuclear weapon. Right. Which, again, is like an interesting way to think of like a global conflict like World War Two, which obviously involved, you know, masses of society. But instead of, you know, seeing it in that kind of sense, it's like one person's sheer determination and will, you know, stop the end of the world from from, from happening. So, like, I mean, do you think that you know as as a as a historian right that this kind of i mean individualism in these kind of conflicts is something that has you know just sort of been created looking backwards like retroactively um you know from from the kind of current standpoint of of our society or do you think there's always sort of been that in some of our romanticism of conflicts like uh, you know these big grand conflicts like world war 2 world war 1 uh, might have have been wrong from the from the get go. Uh, th- there's always an element of it, but you know, there's a big difference when you think about a, a, a band of brothers type show, which mm-hmm. which which does have a single protagonist, but is genuinely presented as a band of brothers or you know the classic u.s war films of the post-world war ii era where you have like the guy from brooklyn the guy from the Mm -hmm. south the guy from california all coming together in a collective so even though those those it's a balance and it's a it's the degree to which which side is balanced and which cultural product because even in those movies you know you might have john wayne or someone who is effectively the protagonist but it's in service of this larger collective endeavor um and i think now you're less likely to have uh, a project along along those lines mm-hmm. um, even if you think about something like the shift from band of brothers to the pacific you know that the, the pacific really did center more on individual protagonists than the band mm-hmm. of brothers show did okay so i mean you know we have we have this critique of you know the, the narrative in the call of duty games um you know why why does it matter i mean are we just you know just being classic lefties not wanting people to enjoy things um you know what what are the stakes here and um, you know, why is it important for us to sort of understand these ideological components that are going into, you know, these very, very influential and popular video games? I mean, I think it's worth just understanding what's going on in the world, whether this will lead to any political change. Uh, probably not. But but people should be aware of what are the what are the sort of the undercurrents of, of culture, because culture um, both reflects you know, more base material realities, but also shapes those realities in turn. So if you want to have just a general understanding of any society, particularly your own in which you operate, you just need to uh, also explore cultural products and not just look at the NASDAQ or the Dow or Mm -hmm. something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. And I think, I think this kind of stuff really is important because there is like a general, I think, you know, cynicism in American society right now, both like on the question of, of war, but in politics, I mean, you know, I've been talking a lot to folks about, 
you know, the failure of the Democrats here in Texas. And like, there's always this kind of idea that Texas is going to flip because there's a lot of people here who, you know, don't like the abortion ban. They don't like the the gun laws. They don't like the economic situation. And, and the polling, you know, aligns with that, that like we are run in, in a minority kind of system. But then, you know, the trick is, is that when you go and interview a lot of the non-voters, which is the vast majority of people here, they say like, yeah, I want, you know, to tax the rich. Yeah, I would like health care. Yeah, I would like all these things. But nothing comes out of politics, right? Like nothing comes out of that. So why would I go waste my time trying to help some guy's personal career um, who's not going to do anything for me, right? There's a real like, you know, um, you know, they always talk about voter suppression, but it's like very much like voter depression. And like, you know, these kind of things like have a big effect on the world that, that we live in. And I think, you know, culture plays a big role, I think, in cementing those ideas in people's heads. Uh, absolutely. It absolutely shapes visions of the possible um, and visions of what you should do with your life. And particularly if you're you're spending hours of your life playing these types mm. of games. And I mean, and these I should say these are the, the biggest games you know they're 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 purchased by an incredible number of people um and they're just played by so so many people that they do have a profound um you know even though not one-to-one causal relationship in sort of a, a more miasmic sense uh shape how people understand the world hmm. Well, Danny Bessner, um, always appreciate having you on. People should follow all of Danny's works. We'll have uh, links below to, to read some of uh, Danny's pieces. And like seriously, y'all, um, sign up for the American Prestige podcast because it really is excellent. And, Thanks, yeah, David. <laughs> I Thanks, appreciate guys. hanging out with you so much, man. Thanks, man.